we've looked at Daniel and said, oh, that's not too, that's not too difficult a book. It's you know, a few little wrinkles here and there, and then you hit these three chapters and whoa. Um, so we'll see if we can make a little bit of sense out of this. Um, we're in, this, in the last section on, on the outline, Daniel's vision of Israel's future. And it's and the last three chapters all comprise just one vision. Um, <clears throat> chapter ten is really just the build up to it. Um, he sees this man who looks awesome. Kind of reminds you of the description of Jesus in the book of Revelation, really. Appearance like lightning and all of that. And then I want to read verses 12 and 13. The man says to Daniel, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So we get kind of this kind of a strange glimpse behind the scenes of, about what it's like to be an angel, <laughs> and that it. Um, I assume the prince of the kingdom of Persia was not a good angel. Because this guy that is is appearing to Daniel is obviously good, and Michael, who is also an angel, was on his side. So you've got a battle going on, but the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about that. Um, we're just kind of told what our part is, and, and we're all fighting part of the same battle, but um, we're in a very different state situation than what these powerful angels are in. So, he's in chapter 11, that's the primary part of the vision. Um, it tells us what's going to happen in the future. And so, he says in, uh, in verse 2, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Um, so I've, I've put a, a timeline on the, the chart here so we can understand what's going on. Uh, Daniel got the vision in, during the reign of Cyrus. Chapter 10, verse 1 is the third year of Cyrus. This is Cyrus the Great. He was reigning in Persia while the Babylonian Empire still went on, but in 540 B.C. he conquered Babylon and he continued reigning for some years afterwards. Um, by the way, what color is that there? Anyone know what color that is? Nobody got it. That's gold. <laughs> what color is this? Must be silver. That's silver, yeah, okay. <laughs> It's not real obvious. If I was a better artist, I could do a better job. But <clears throat> yeah, so so this the three more kings leads us up to Xerxes the first, king of Persia, and he's the same king that was called Ahasuerus in the Book of Esther. 
And, and now this is, of course, this will be long after Daniel's dead because um, at this point, Daniel's got to be around 90 years old um, uh, at the youngest. I mean, because he, he, since he was college age when he was taken captive, 70 years before Cyrus uh, became a king, or Cyrus took over Babylon, so um, he's not going to be around in the time of Esther. But Xerxes had a huge empire, but he wanted huger. <laughs> he wanted Greece. Um, and so he um, raised a huge, huge army, and they had a big, huge series of battles. And, and Greece won just by the skin of their teeth. There was just some really lucky uh, storms on, on the sea that, that uh, ruined uh, Xerxes' chances. And that happens actually somewhere early on in the book of Esther, although it's never even mentioned, but um, it's, the chronology does would, would have that happen. Then in verse 3 of this chapter, um, and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. You have no idea between verses 2 and 3 that you suddenly changed empires. I mean, it's not like the next king after Xerxes. We jump forward a huge distance to Alexander the Great. But it's because of what Xerxes did. Xerxes almost defeated the Greeks. They've been remembering this for over a century now, and they're really mad. Even after all this time, they're mad. And Alexander decides he's going to do something about it, and he goes and he conquers the Persian Empire. In fact, he conquered more than that. He kept going, went on into India, conquered part of that, conquered Egypt, I mean, everything he could conquer. And so he is the great king we just read about. Alexander the Great. And then, but, in verse 4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. You remember that there was four horns. There was one horn uh, in the earlier vision, one horn on the goat. And it broke off and then four horns arose in place of it. And we talked about that last week and, and at the map how the four generals under Alexander, Alexander parceled out his empire into four pieces. Now from this point to the end of the chapter, we're only concerned with two of the pieces. Uh, Egypt, which was ruled by the Ptolemies, and Syria, which was ruled by the Seleucids. And so in verse 5, then the king of the south will grow strong along with, and, and, and it goes back and forth. I'm sure your head was spinning by the time you finished reading this chapter. It keeps going back, king of the south, king of the north. And the, to make matters more difficult, they're different kings each, each time. It, it's not obvious when it changes, but between Alexander and Antiochus comes up in, I think, in verse 31. Between, you know, from verse 5 on through verse 30, you've got a bunch of different kings of the north and of the south. The north being the king of Syria, the south being the king of Egypt. And the prediction is, is so accurate that it's very easy for someone who knows the history of that period, period to tell you the names of all these different people. I mean, it's... Um, uh, I, I don't have it in front of me. I, I've taught this in the past, and I've, I've had a cheat sheet that I can go through and tell you what each of the kings is. But 
I don't have it now. Um, the, the whole chapter, though, exists for one person. And that one person is in verse 31. Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I've been telling you wrong. Verse 21. Yeah. Verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. That's exactly the way Antiochus became king. He, he did not inherit it. He just took it over. And then it goes on and tells about, you know, he, he's up until this point, we've been covering lots of different guys, but now we're going to cover him all the way. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 31, but it's still the same guy. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, this was the worst time the Jews probably had ever had before the time of Christ. Uh, this, this time of Antiochus Epiphanes was just terrible. And they have a festival today called the um, Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, which celebrates when they got to rededicate the temple at the end of um, of his life. Um, it was just it was a lot of Jews died who were faithful, and it was a very terrible time. But now things get very strange. As I said, up until this point, historians can go through and they can tell you, okay, here's the name of that person, that's what happened. And and it's just like you put Daniel chapter 11 on the left, you put your history book on the right, and you just go down and follow it. But from verse 36 on, it does not match the history of Antiochus. And and there's different ways that people deal with this. Um, I'll read verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Now that verse could certainly apply to Antiochus. But as you go on, it it does not seem to fit. And, and commentators have taken a couple different routes with this. Uh, some of the older commentator, commentators like Barnes force-fit it. They just insist that um, they can make it fit. Um, recent commentators, though, I don't know, uh, I, I'm not familiar with them that well, but they don't seem to be taking that approach. Instead, they suggest that there's a gap here, that we've jumped to another king, and it's not Antiochus anymore. And the king they suggest is the Antichrist predicted in the book of Thessalonians and talked about at the at the end of Revelation. So I'll just mention that and without giving you a 
whole lot of evidence, but this is just a survey of the Bible. I just want you to be aware of that issue. Um, then we go to chapter 12, and still on the same vision, the same guy is still talking to Daniel. And he says in verse 1, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, those who, who take the last king in chapter 11 as being Antiochus do not see this as being the revelation, I mean, being the resurrection that we're all looking forward to. This is more of a resurrection of a, of a cause, kind of like what you had with the Valley of Dry Bones, the resurrection of the, of the nation. But those who take that king as being the Antichrist at the very end, they take this as being the, the, the resurrection that we all look forward to. Um, and I will admit, it does look, look to me like it is talking about that last resurrection. I'll read the last verse of the chapter. As for you, he's talking to Daniel, of course. Go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. We read that and we think, that's the resurrection. And, I, and that sounds to me like the same thing in verse 2. But again, it, it depends how you handle the last part of chapter 11 is whether you're going to think that. Um, if this is the resurrection at the end of, uh, of that we're looking forward to, it's one of the very few times in the Old Testament where that's talked about. I think there are a couple other places, but this one would be the most clear. Um, I know when we were uh, we took a class under Homer Haley back in Florida College, and he made the statement that he did not believe there was any prophecy in the Old Testament that, that extended beyond the end of the first century A.D. So, of course, he did not think this was talking about the, the resurrection of Daniel at the end of time. But I know he's mistaken about the general statement. There's no prophecy that was that was that went beyond the end of the first century A.D. because the prophecy that da- that Babylon would be destroyed had not happened for several hundred years after the first century. So I know there are Old Testament prophecies that go beyond the end of the first century, <coughs> and this one, in my judgment, is one of them. But as I said, there's people that will disagree with that. All right, and then by the way, this chart goes right on the borderline here. That's zero, <laughs> which there is no actual zero. That's one BC or one AD, um, and that and Jesus was born about five or six BC. Um, so Jesus will be right on the very edge of this chart, and that that black color that's iron, by the way, that's the Roman Empire, the, the fourth part of the original statue. Now we go to a new book. <clears throat> A new section. What is our new section? Minor prophets. prophets. Called Minor... Why? They're all teenagers. (laughs) Yeah, teenagers. Okay. They are... um, They wrote shorter books. (laughs) Um, In fact, I mentioned last week you could put all of these 12 prophets together and together they are shorter than the one book of Isaiah. Now... You have to be a little bit careful in terms of chronology because when we start the Minor Prophets, 
It's not like, oh, we've gotten up to Daniel, now this is going to be after Daniel's time. It's not after Daniel's time. We're actually going backwards in time. And I'll, I'll show you on Matthew's chart that he did for us about the books. See, here in the captivity, we had Daniel, we had Ezekiel, we had Lamentations, all of these books written uh, during the time of the captivity. But now we're going back. Here's Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, all these guys at the time of Second Chronicles and Second Kings. And we're going to be doing Hosea. <coughs> in our chart here, the author of this, this King's chart showed us where Isaiah cover, falls. But he didn't show us all the others. And Hosea covers the first part of Isaiah's time. He began prophesying probably near the end of Jeremiah II's reign. And he extended it into Hezekiah's reign, probably the very beginning of Hezekiah's reign. And the beginning of Hezekiah's reign was shortly before the end of the northern kingdom. And Hosea prophesied mostly about which kingdom? Yeah, mostly about the northern kingdom. He does mention the southern kingdom. It does not get really good press in Hosea, uh, but it's not as bad as the northern kingdom. The <clears throat> northern kingdom, kingdom was terrible. And the t period that he was prophesying was about the worst part of the, of the whole kingdom. It, it began, now when it began in Jeremiah's time, this is Jeremiah, the great-great-grandson of Jehu, the guy that wiped out Ahab's house. <clears throat> and he was promised that his, that his descendants to the fourth generation would reign because he had, he had wiped out Ahab's house, which God wanted to do. And the, fourth, the first generation, Jehoahaz, then Jehoahaz, Jeroboam, Zechariah, who didn't reign very long, he got assassinated. Um, so we're very close to the end of Jehu's dynasty. And under Jeroboam II, of course Jeroboam I was not in the same family, but Jeroboam II, the size of the, Is of the Israelite nation was the greatest. The prosperity was the greatest. He conquered lands around about that. Um, there was a very famous prophet that lived in the time of, Jer of Jeroboam and prophesied about him but not in a written book. Anyone know who that was? He did have a written book, but he didn't mention Jeroboam in the written book. Not enough clues yet. Jonah, yeah. Jonah, in, his, in the book of Jonah, doesn't mention hardly anything about Israel. But he actually prophesied during the time of Jeroboam and about Jeroboam. Um, Hosea... Um, I don't know if he overlapped Jonah's time or not because he comes in at the end of Jeroboam's time. But he began prophesying in this very prosperous time, but it just very rapidly fell apart. You see, the huge number of kings here is because they're killing each other off. It's just, it, was, it would have been a terrible time to be living there because you understand that you know, when you have somebody killing off the king, you have social upheavals and civil wars and all kinds. It's just terrible. Um, and then you have the Assyrians. They didn't just come in at the very end. They, they were involved all this time in causing havoc, taking off pieces of the nation. So Hosea was prophesying at a very critical time, trying to tell the people why it was so bad and trying to get them to come back to God. And of course, as we know, he was not successful. He had the same 
amount of success as any of the other prophets did, which was practically nothing um, in the short run. But in the long run, the people did get the message. They, they, saved, they saved Hosea's book, read it later on, and learned a lot, and we can still learn from it today. By the way, if anyone wants a copy of this King's chart, I still have one or two left, so just let, ask me afterwards. Um, you're going to need the chart for about two more weeks and then we'll be done with it because we'll be on to the New Testament. Alright, so here is our outline of Hosea, which we're going to follow. We're, we're supposed to do the whole book this morning. We better do it because I've got too much to do next week. Um, the first three chapters are about the unfaithful wife and the faithful husband, which brings us to one of the most unusual features of the book. And what is that? God commands him to marry a prostitute. Yeah, God commands him to marry this woman of harlotry. Now, and different people have had different ideas about what this was. You know, you have some commentators that think, well, this didn't really happen. This is just kind of a parable. And others will say, uh, yeah, I think it did happen. Um, and of course, they're both reading the exact same material. They don't. None of them have any kind of secret revelation. It, um, and the ones that say it did happen will have different ways of explaining it. Some of them will say, "Well, um, God told him to, to pick a woman out of Israel to marry, and <laughs> there was only one choice. They were all women of harlotry." And others will say, "Well, God said, you know, this is the one." I, and uh, obviously, nobody knows, but. In some way, God conveyed to Hosea what He wanted to do. And I don't think it was a parable. I think He really did marry this woman. And whether she was a harlot when He married her, I don't think the Scriptures say that. I mean, of harlotry can basically mean out of a society that is that is generally behaving that way. And by the end, she is she herself behaves that way. She's just like the rest of, of the nation. Um, but Hosea doesn't seem to expect this behavior because when, when she behaves that way, he, he's just very grieved. Although it's very difficult to tell in, in this when it's Hosea complaining about his own wife and when it's God complaining about his wife. Who is God's wife? Israel. Yeah, the nation of Israel. People of the, God, the people of Israel. And the whole reason why he wants Hosea to have this marriage and experience this pain is so that Hosea can convey that pain to God's people to understand how God feels when they're unfaithful to Him. And they were married to God. Now we've seen we've had the same thing in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. We've had. Um, the same idea that God is married to the people and that they're being unfaithful to Him. How are they being unfaithful to God? Yeah, worshiping other idols. When you worship God, you're faithful to your husband. When you worship idols, you're you're committing adultery. That's what the, that that's what we've seen all along, and that's certainly what's going on here. So in all right, well. Um, in this first section, the first three chapters are the one. The, the first three chapters are the only chapters that talk about his wife and, and the the, the um, behavior of her. She has three children. What's the name of the first one? God God names them. What's the name of the first one? Jezreel. Now, 
In his in Israelite history, what is Jezreel? Yeah, the plain of Jezreel. Yeah, um, and um, he says in verse five, "On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel." The bow, of course, the bow and arrow. The, the weapons get wiped out. Later, we're going to see that Jezreel has another has actually a meaning that God uses. We'll get to that. Um, then she has a daughter. What what's her name? Lo Ruhama. Yeah, Lo Ruhama, and what does that mean? Um, yeah, she's not loved, or she has not obtained compassion. Yeah, and that's what God's going to do to Israel. He's not going to have compassion on her anymore. Then the third child is a son, and what's his name? Lo Ami, which means. Not my people. So he's going to cast them out. They're not going to be his people anymore. Um, so let me see here. Yet, verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So, He's predicting the time far in the future when they'll become His people again. They'll be restored. But in the meantime, there are some really bad times to come. Um, in chapter 2, verse 1, Say to your brothers, Ami, unto your sisters, Ruhama. He left the word, the prefix, Lo, off. So Ami now means obtained compassion, and Ruhama means my people. So, in the future, he's going to turn it around. They won't. They won't be have that same name. But for now, verse two: Contend with your mother. Contend for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her her breasts. Is this God talking, or is this Hosea talking? <laughs> they both feel the same way, and that was the point of the marriage, so that Hosea would enter into God's experience with him and, and convey that. Verse 5, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. What was the God that the Israelites were all the time going off and worshiping that the Canaanites really liked to worship? Baal. Yeah, Baal. And Baal means my master. Uh, and there were lots of Baals, in fact. Um, that there was, you know, a Baal of each different vicinity, and that, but Baal was a fertility god, and so that they would thank Baal when they got a good harvest, and and of course, the worship of those gods back then was was like superstition today. It it, it was not at all based upon moral behavior. It was based upon you do certain things and you get certain things back. You know, you push the right buttons of the God and the God will give you the, the, the things you want. And, and so they, they, would, they would have their special worship for, for Baal and then they have a good harvest and they would say, wow, you know, Baal has given me all these wonderful things. And, and of course, God's looking at this and saying, I gave you that! I'm your husband! And God's really mad. Um... 
So God's going to do something about it. Um, and um, the rest of the chapter talks about, you know, like, well, he goes on with in, back and forth what he's going to do and what her attitude is. And then finally, he yet looks for a, a hopeful time in verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. What's the connection between the word sow and the word Jezreel? Jezreel means God sows. And and you need to understand that because in, at the end of verse 22 it says they will respond to Jezreel. And you read that and think, what's that about? It's God sowing. God's going to plant the people in the land. Um, and He'll have compassion. And He says, I will say to those who were not My people, you are My people. And they will say, you are My God. Then chapter 3 this again comes back to we're talking to Hosea again about his marriage. The Lord said to me, "Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raising cakes." I assume raising cakes were the offerings they were making to Baal. Um, who's this woman he's talking about? Yeah, this is Hosea's wife, Gomer. Now we learn that she's. She's been so unfaithful, she's left him. She's gone off, she's an adulteress, and God says, go love her. And most people would say, she's a jerk. <laughs> she doesn't deserve to be loved. But Hosea does it. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. I understand that's the price of a slave. Apparently she had fallen so far down she was a slave. That... Um, so he buys her back. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. So she's going to live in Hosea's house, but they're not going to have marital relations for a long time. And the explanation is in verse 4. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. So, that those 70 years they were in, the, well, the southern kingdom was 70 years in, in Babylon. The northern kingdom we was talking to, it was far longer. For that whole period of time, they did not have access to, to the temple. They could not offer sacrifices. They didn't have a king. They were slaves, in fact. Um, then in verse 5, afterward, the sons of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. So God's going to reform the, these unfaithful people. They're going to, they, they will finally learn to be faithful after going through this very painful experience. Alright, so that's the first section. The unfaithful wife and the faithful husband. The second section is the unfaithful nation and the faithful God. And there's actually only two sections in the whole book. But this section has subsections. The first subsection verses 4 through the beginning of chapter 6, is Israel's unfaithfulness. Um, and we'll just pick out some representative verses. In chapter 4, verse 2, there is swear, swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now we've seen the same kinds of things in the other prophets. It just was They were terrible times to live and there was horrible sins going on. Verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now this is a rebuke 
To what class of people then? The priests. The priests, that's right. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priests. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. And then in continuing in the same section, chapter 5, verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. Now in the context of a relationship with God, why are they bringing their flocks and herds? Yeah, they want to go sacrifice to God. Their attitude about God is the same as their attitude about Baal. Hey, we just push the right buttons and God will give us the right things. And that's not the kind of relationship God's going to have with these people. He is not a God that you can manipulate like that. He is their husband and He expects them to be faithful to Him. So that's why He is withdrawn from them there in chapter 5, verse 6. Verse 8, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Bethaven. Behind you, Benjamin. Why do you blow a horn? Battle. Battle, that's right. And which direction would the enemy come from against Israel? From the north. Now look where he's talking about. Here is Ramah. Gibeah is not on the map, but it's a few miles south of there. If, the, if they're blowing a horn there in Ramah and, and the enemy is in that area, what does that tell you about all of Israel? Their history. That's what that verse is about. <laughs> then um, chapter 6, verse 1. Who's talking here? Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. Israel. Israel is, yes. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Wow, let's, let's go back. God will restore us. Verse 2, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. But this brings us to the next section, Israel's punishment. And verse 4, God says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. <laughs> and It's easy to come and easy to go with them. Hey, let's go back to God and He'll, he'll take us in. And, and God's saying, you know, we've been through this so many times. <laughs> your, your, your loyalty evaporates like the dew in the morning. Um, chapter 7 and verse 7. All of them are hot like an oven. They consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Now, they consume their rulers... We looked at the chart and we saw all these different kings in the time of Hosea. They're killing each other off. It's exactly what he's talking about here in verse 7. Verse 11, So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. The same kind of alliances we saw in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Isaiah. You know, let's, let's get our big brother down south, our big brother to the north to protect us. Rather than Rather than turning to what? To God. Right. So that's why they're a silly dove. Um, chapter 8 and verse 7, very famous. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. <laughs> that's a very well known passage. Alright, chapter 9, um, verse 3. They will not remain in the Lord's land but Ephraim will return to Egypt 
And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. When he says return to Egypt, he's they're not literally going to go back to Egypt, but they're going to go back to what they had back when Israel was in Egypt, which was they were slaves. That's what he means by returning to Egypt there. Um, in verse 10, God looks back, way back. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, which of course would be very attractive, grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. Now Baal Peor, this is a this goes back to the book of Numbers. Um, it's either Numbers or Deuteronomy. I don't remember which. I think it's, it's Numbers though where they, the um, Midianites are sending their women in encouraging the men to go worship Baal, Baal Peor. And a lot of the Israelites died because of that. And they've been, they've been worshiping Baal ever since, of course, in one way or another. Um, chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. These are not altars to God, of course. They're altars to Baal. Just sad what they're doing. But that's been the history of Israel. We, we saw this in the book of Judges. Whenever God would bless them and, the, and things would get good for them, they turn off and worship the Baals. Then when God would punish them and bring an enemy in, then they would repent, put away the Baals, tell God they're sorry, and He would rescue them again. And so this is just kind of a summary of, of how they've been living all their lives. Um, verse 8, Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and the hills fall on us. And that last phrase, you may recall, who quoted that in the New Testament? Yeah, Jesus quoted that when He was predicting what was going to happen to Jerusalem. You have similar sentiments in the book of Revelation as well. Um, <clears throat> Alright. Now, so that's Israel's punishment. <coughs> the last subsection is the Lord's faithful love. In chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. One of the amazing things that God's trying to get across in this book is how He loves Israel in spite of her unfaithfulness to Him. And that that was the whole point of, of Hosea marrying a woman who's going to be such a jerk. Um, so God's looking back on the early days. It's just like two people that have been having some really serious problems in their marriage looking back on the early days when, wow, it was so wonderful back then. And, and He remembers, you know, out of each other, I called my son, and it was just so wonderful. But the more they called them, the more they went from them, they kept sacrificing to the bales and burning incense to idols. He says, yet as I who taught Ephraim to walk, I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? By the way, what's this Adma and Zeboiim? Did anyone look that up? 
that this is not a, they're not very well known towns, but they were two of the towns that were in alliance with Sodom and Gomorrah when they fought against um, Kedorlaomer and his confederates. Those two towns were also wiped out when Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out. So he, when he says, how can I make you like Abed? In other words, how can I just wipe you out and, and there's no memory anymore? He says, all my p- compassions are kindled. God just cannot do this. So in verse 10, they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, He will roar and His sons will come trembling from the west. So God in His undying love is predicting when His people will come back to Him after He has punished them. They they will yet come back. Now, jump down to chapter 13. In verse 4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except Me, for there is no Savior beside Me. And then in verse 10, Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities, and your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and princes? Do you remember back in, all the way back to the book of 1 Samuel when the people wanted a king? And God told Samuel who were they rejecting as king? God. They were rejecting God. That's right. So God's reminding them now of this now. You wanted a king. Okay. You didn't want me. So where is your king? Is he going to save you? And of course, this we saw on the chart, this is in a period of the history of Israel when their king was just powerless. He couldn't do anything. Alright, chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. He's looking forward to the future. And it's a wonderful picture. And he finally closes out in verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. So, quite a book. Um, Nothing else quite like this in the Bible that goes into the depths of God's heart like this with a marriage that obviously broke Hosea's heart. Any other comments or questions on the material? Appreciate everyone's help.